G'day everybody, Travis McKenzie here and I'm back with another edition of the I'm Curious to Know Project, a series of daily conversations with elite athletes, innovators and unique personalities from the endurance sports world. Today's guest is Mike Ergo, a veteran of the US Marines, an Ironman athlete and founder of the Gold Star Initiative. Mike's led a very interesting life. He enlisted as a Marine as a young man wanting to serve his country. During his second deployment in Iraq, him and his fellow Marines became locked in the Second Battle of Fallujah. Now, before we go any further, it's important to note, the reality of war is something I've personally never really thought about or asked about. But true to the title of this series, I was curious and I had to ask. Mike shares some detailed memories of war and the content may not be appropriate or relevant to all audiences. So please use discretion as to whether you or those around you are open to hearing these accounts from Mike. Following his deployment, Mike's life spiraled out of control. He began using and abusing drugs and alcohol as a way to escape his guilt, which eventually led to addiction. While vacationing in Hawaii, Mike stumbled on the Ironman World Championships. And with a newfound intrigue, the seed was planted in his mind that maybe one day he'd be able to do something like that too. Multiple Ironman finishes later and with a renewed sense of purpose, Mike is on a path to support fellow veterans and families who've lost loved ones in the line of duty. I know I'll have Mike on the show again as there's lots we didn't cover, but for now, please enjoy. Today's guest is someone I'm very excited to, to connect with. We shared a story of Mike Ergo on our Inner Voice channel a couple of years ago now when he was beginning his journey as a triathlete. Now he's well and truly down the road of being a tri-geek, um, but he's got an amazing story and I'm really excited to to dig in and share that a little bit more today. So Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's good to talk to you. Now, for those people who don't know your story, it's been somewhat you know, publicized over the last couple of years and rightfully so, but I really want to dig in and share a bit more of your journey and your story because I think it's one that really needs to continue to be told because of the, the work that you are doing and the great work you do in your community. But let's start from the beginning. You're, you're sure. a US Marine. Um, you're a veteran. You've been uh, a great uh, American and you've been a hero and you've done some amazing things in your time. But tell me about how that first begun for you. When did you realize mm -hmm. that you wanted to serve your country and you wanted to take that on and, and, and enlist in the Marines? Well, service have been important in my life growing up. I've done some mission trips with the church I was going to at the time. And I think my senior year, I wasn't sure about going to college. Just nothing appealed to me except when I saw the Marine Corps. And I realized it was something that I would have to earn myself. And I couldn't take any handouts. I couldn't get any help from family. And service to the country was really important. So I signed up. And I actually signed up the spring of, of my senior year uh, right after I turned 18. But I originally signed up to be in the Marine Corps band. So I auditioned and, and passed for that. Then after uh, September 11th, decided to switch over to the infantry. Tell me what that was like. So, I, you know, growing up in Australia, we're, we're kind of removed from the US and but we, we watch a lot of US TV and a lot of movies and, you, you know, there's the, the wars and the war is publicized and, and I guess glorified. What went into your decision making? You mentioned service was something big for you growing up. Did you really want to make an impact? Like what was the kind of the thought pattern you were going through of like, I, I just want to be my, play my part and, and play a role here or you wanted to make an impact? I knew I really craved 
something challenging and hard, something that it would take every ounce of willpower and reserve I had. I knew that if I didn't sign up when I had the courage, I had a good chance of just leading a mediocre life. And serving the country was important to me because I just realized I had an awesome opportunity to grow up and be educated and feel safe in my neighborhood. I grew up hearing a lot of stories about Marines fighting in World War II in the Pacific against Imperial Japan. And, and I said, you know what, I want to be part, I want to be part of the Marine Corps if I can and be willing to serve in whatever capacity I can. So tell me the kind of the next steps there. You, you enlist, you know, what's your journey through training? What's your journey through getting to the point where you're deployed for the first time? Well, you show up in San Diego if you're on the West Coast and there's the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, which is right next to the airport. So you can see all these recruits getting yelled at and run around as your plane's landing. So you show up on these yellow footprints and you wait. It's just a blur of being yelled at and being too slow and hurrying and getting your head shaved. Basically, you start over from square one. You relearn how to put your socks on the way the Marine Corps wants you to put your socks on. It was the first time I was ever homesick, and I had spent you know months away from home during the summers and in foreign countries. But I realized I was no longer grandma's special boy. I was a, just another you know, maggot or another recruit. So I had to earn the respect I got. I mean, all of the physical fitness, obviously, there's no getting around that. The, the mental toughness, be, being able to perform under pressure. I liked it. It was terrifying, but I, I liked the fact that I became way more confident. After boot camp, I was sent to the Marine Corps School of Music and eventually decided that it wasn't for me and I wanted to be in the infantry and they were happy to oblige me. So I spent a summer in, in Carolina, North Carolina, learning all of the tactics of an infantryman, how to shoot, move and communicate, how to shoot different weapon systems, how to give hand signals and commands and move in specific formations to attack, defend. And then after that training, which was a few months, it got sent to my unit still there in North Carolina. And it was six months later. So I get stationed my unit summer of 2002. And then I leave early spring 2003 for the war in Iraq. Is it fair to say that when you first arrive at boot camp, it's really a process of breaking you down to build you back up? Oh, completely. All your individual identity is stripped away. You wear the same clothes. You have the same haircut. You just have a shaved head. And I, I remember uh, that, that night after I got my head shaved, looking at my reflection in the window and just being like, Ooh, it does not look good. I had my baby fat still. I was pale, still am. And, you know, it just had a shaved head. And yeah, they took all, all their uh, identity away. We had to respond and talk in the third person. Had to learn how to work as teammates with other people and put other people before ourselves. And that wasn't new to me, but the extent to which we did it was new to me. I couldn't imagine myself in that position. I'm sure there's probably people that were recruits alongside you that uh, thought, you know, they had this idealistic view of what this is going to be like and they and they wanted to do, they wanted to enlist and they had every intention of following through, but they weren't able to fit in, I guess. Um, you know, what are some of the, the kind of the, mo well, even personally yourself, you probably, you mentioned you had moments where you're like, oh, I don't know if this is for me. Is there anything yeah. that stands out for you where you're like, you were about to, you know, call it quits and, and jump on the plane and go home? A couple of times I wanted to quit. I think it's hard. At least they make you believe it's hard to quit uh, Marine Corps boot camp. I think that the time was I was, during team week, you basically just do service. And I was working at the, the cafeteria for the permanent personnel, the drill instructors. And the drill instructor in charge of our work detail 
absolutely hated me. I think uh, there I just had this face that people wanted to punch is the best <laughs> way I could describe it. <laughs> Almost every day at lunch, he'd take me back while everybody else got to eat lunch and just thrash me doing physical fitness, impossible cleaning tasks, like moving the whole squad bay from one side to the other, trying to do you know a 40 person job and failing at it. And I remember after especially brutal day of this coming back to our squad bay with the rest of our platoon, and they had gotten in trouble for something else. And so we had to duck walk the length of the squad bay. And, and I want to say it's at least 50 to 75 meters long. So we're duck walking and we'd scrub left, scrub right, step, scrub left, scrub right, step. I had tears welling up and I said, man, this is even harder than I had imagined it would be because I'm, I'm at that breaking point right now. Did you go there believing that you were mentally tough and mentally strong? No, I knew I had some mental toughness, but I knew I'd be tested. Early on, I knew that I liked endurance, and so I knew that would play uh, play a part. I just remember in fourth grade, I loved running the mile, and that was the, the big event for long-distance uh, sports at her elementary school. And I knew that other kids didn't have the mental uh, toughness to keep going for that distance, and I, I had a little bit more than the average person. So I knew I knew going into it, I had some advantage, but I, you know, I, I knew I was going into a setting with a lot of people from really tough backgrounds that I couldn't imagine. And so I, I, I knew that I wouldn't that I would have my challenge. Um, I'd be challenging for sure. Now you go through training, um, you're, you know, you're out there in the Carolinas, you're working on your drills, you're working on your formations and your tactics it still probably feels a far, far, far away from Iraq and the war field and the battlefield. Tell me about how you felt when you got news that you were shipping out. I was excited. As you can imagine, an infantry unit spends all of its time training and doing weapons maintenance. So training and cleaning. It's like, you know, constantly practicing for a football game and never getting to play that game. And so finally, we knew that we we're going to get to go put our skills to the test. And it was everything we had been training hours and hours and hours and weeks and, and months and years for. So I was excited to say the least. Was there the, you know, the, the inner voice in your head saying, there's a chance that, you know, you may not return, you may get killed in, in battle. Was that something that crossed your mind or was this, this, there was something else in you that said, this is my place and my purpose and whatever the result, it will be the result. Yeah. I had a fatalistic attitude and I said, what happens will happen living with that very possibility and that danger close at hand made me feel so alive. Like I could really feel the present moment because I could, I could feel the air in my skin. I could, I could taste the food I was eating. I could really hear the people around me because of just how present I had to be because of that danger. I knew that it was a possibility, but I was, I was okay with it because mostly because I was with people I trusted and I trained with, and you know, I knew they had my back. It's probably not a great way to go uh, into something like that, believing that the worst result is going to happen. Obviously, <laughs> it's always what's the best case scenario. Same as an Ironman, same as a triathlon. I don't, I don't want to make that sound like it's it, it's the equivalent because it's not. But you go into it with the best case scenario in your head rather than the worst case because you're never going to succeed if you're wondering or if you're thinking that the worst yeah. is going to happen. You, you know, you get on the plane. Surely you're like, oh shit, turn this around, or you're just jumping out of your seat saying, let's go, let's go, let's get there. What was that like as you as you're flying? Yeah, it was a big mix. I mean, well, I should clarify, my first deployment was on ship. We we okay. were in Iraq initially for short of a few weeks and then back on ship re responding to crises around the globe. But 
we didn't do too much combat at all. The second time we flew, and as I'm flying there, I realized how much I loved my girlfriend, now wife, because I dropped her off the airport a few days prior, and my heart was just crushed because I was like, I might never see her again. And I knew that I really liked her, but then I realized how much I loved her. The other thing that was going through my head was, I forgot sunscreen, <laughs> being fair skinned, you know, that's, that's like, man, I might die of sunburn before I, any bullets come across me. So those are the two things on my mind. And, yeah. you know, of course, all the danger coming up. So it was a mix of missing my wife, fear and excitement. I'm imagining that there's not an opportunity to really talk through your feelings. You're hardened men and you're ready to go to war and you're tr you've trained for this and the moment's coming, but you've got these doubts. The guy sitting next to you has these doubts. You know, the guy across the dinner table has these doubts. Was there an opportunity to share these thoughts or was that something that you just had to bottle up inside and hold on to those doubts? Yeah, we had ways of expressing them, but they weren't, you know, overt or explicit. They were ways of looking at each other, just kind of you know, taking each other's temperature, being like, you good, you good. And there was a lot of gallows humor. I don't know if it was MasterCard or Visa had this commercial um, where they list off things in the price. And then they'd say, you know, like having the perfect experience priceless. Yeah. And I put this on my headband that wrapped around my uh, helmet, oak casket, $8,000, funeral, $10,000, getting shot in the face, priceless. And so that was my way of dealing with it. And that was the gallows humor that we had because it was, ha ha, that's pretty funny. We can make light of it. And there's a lot of that to ease the tension. Do you think that that kind of attitude maybe kind of plays into some of the issues that people have coming back from these zones? And I don't want to skip too far forward in your story, but I, I imagine that like the ability not to share or talk about those things effectively could be part of the issues or part of the problem. There's an advantage to being so hardened and so, I think, callous and seeing things in black and white that make you a very effective Marine or soldier. But to the detriment of coming back, being able to see the individual shades of colors or nuance in life. And so, yeah, that not having the vocabulary even to express the, the feelings I was having definitely played to my disadvantage coming back because it became all confusion and chaos. You had to segment that part of it. Otherwise, you're not successful in oh, that environment. Exactly. So you were either stoked, you were yeah. bummed out or pissed off. There's like three emotions you can have or fine, which meant anything. I know that the second deployment, your team, your unit gets caught up in the second battle of Fallujah, which from what I've read is the, is the bloodiest battle that has been faced since the Vietnam War. We were tasked with spearheading an effort, a big battle, a city of Fallujah, which I believe before the people were evacuated was about 250,000, really big built up urban environment. It became the beacon for jihad or people who wanted to, to fight the Americans. So we had people coming from all over the world who were not fans of the U.S. and, and wanted to, to fight the occupiers. And so they spent a tremendous amount of time building up the cities, building tunnels in between the houses, setting booby traps, making you know roadblocks. We came into that environment with people in houses, with you know, rockets, machine guns, um, big, heavy weapons shooting at us. And we had to be able to find them first and shoot them before they shot us, which was a challenge because we're the ones coming in. They, they have the, the home field advantage there. So we spent about a month in the city, the first six days of which were the full-on invasion and going from north to south of the city, clearing almost every single house in our path, you know, kicking open a door, 
looking for people to shoot back and trying to shoot them first. And then doing that over and over and over and over. Days and nights kind of blurred together for a while. Did you want to finish the job or you like, get me out of here? This is too much. Like, how do you kind of reconcile those experiences in the moment? I knew it was everything I wanted. So there's this initial wave of adrenaline and that would ebb and flow, you know, with the excitement and the the sounds and the like, it's complete uh, sensory overload too. That's what I sign up for. Am I trained uh, well enough? Did I listen? Did I, did I make sure I learned everything to the best of my ability? And most important to me was, can I bring my guys home alive? Third was hopefully I can survive this too. After having so many close calls, almost getting shot or, you know, getting blown up and then, you know, coming to and, and, and surviving, it started to wear me. Uh, you know, I started to play mental games with myself is like, all right, if I'm a betting man, how many times can you do this and come out alive? Like, what are the odds? Like they seem to decrease with each encounter I have. I wasn't sure how, how I survived the last one. You know, after that month, I was ready. Yeah. To get the hell out of there. That's for sure. Are you thinking about the human cost on the other side? I've never had a conversation with anyone who's been in a war zone. I've only ever seen TV, movies, and it feels like it happens somewhere else. I have to ask that question of you. It did. And there's this very specific incident, which it did. There were some women and children. They had a white flag and they were moving across a road. And this is the first day we had, we'd come into the city. And obviously they had not evacuated or gotten out behind them like sneaking and crouching behind them were some guys that pretty obviously were fighting against us and using them as human shields. And I was trying to tell them, you know, Ta'al, come, come to us. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't, they ended up maneuvering, you know, with these people from one building to the next. I just thought, man, these poor people are, are caught right there. They're caught in the middle of this, this battle between our forces and the other forces. And they have nothing to do with it and want nothing to do with it. That was very upsetting that I couldn't help them. In a large part though, it was mostly concentrated on, on killing the enemy. It wasn't until, you know, years and years after that I slowly started to think about, you know, all the people who lived in that city, who grew up there, who now don't have homes and who were basically forced out. And I'm still putting together like the human cost of, of what happened over there. I don't want to discount or downplay what you were able to achieve and what you guys did there. And, you know, the people on the other side also were making the choice to engage as well. It wasn't like yeah. there were these people who were not wanting to be involved. They were definitely wanting to be involved. So I guess that's probably a way that you, you and your team could have justified that to yourself in the moment as well. Our duty was to enact foreign policy. When I talked to people back home afterwards, they're like, well, were you, were you opposed to it? Were you for it? And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, it's not like we get together in a room and say, all right, you guys want to go fight in Iraq? I or nay, you know, <laughs> like we, yeah, yeah, yeah. we go there. We, we're the ones who enact the policy. We kick down doors if diplomacy fails. You know, you lost 29 of, of your brothers uh, within that particular battle, um, which for you proved to be a really, you know, a big driving factor in the guilt that you carried, um, that you weren't able to bring your brothers home. Yeah, there were so many Marines that in my mind were more disciplined more inspirational or better leaders were just better Marines and people I really looked up to who got caught either trying to save other people or got hit with a random bullet or were blown up and just killed in ways. And it made no sense to me. I especially remember after I got back, we had a memorial service. And for that deployment, we lost 21. We lost eight after that. I tried to go talk to some of the parents and you know, let them know I was friends with their son. 
but I felt so ashamed of myself that I couldn't bring their son back. And I, I had all these fears that they're probably angry at me, you know, cause I came back and their son didn't, I felt terrible. Like I just felt so inadequate like, that I couldn't face these people. It was tough. Like I went up to this one mother of my friend Dave and I, before I got there, I just broke down and, and, and turned away. So I couldn't even, I couldn't even face them and, and, and make words come together. I can see the pain in your eyes as you describe that. I can, yeah. I can feel that you're kind of reliving that moment. For you, you know, that those type of experiences led to some pretty severe PTSD, which led to, you know, using cocaine and alcohol uh, as a way to, you know, numb the pain effectively and, and kind yeah. of drove you into a, into a period of addiction. I don't want to spend too long dwelling on the negatives because there's so much positive on that story, but yeah. can you tell me kind of how, you know, how quickly that spot, you know, you spiraled out of control and then, you know, maybe to, to change tact, how did, how did you kind of find your way out of that? So I got home, finished my deployment and then got out of the Marine Corps a few months later and started working at my, my dad's law firm as a clerk and started going to community college and was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do or really what to do next. It was just this overwhelming sensation of, whoa, this humongous battle and this war happened and I was just there. What do I do with that? What do I do now? How do I even understand what happened? I had what I learned now are called intrusive thoughts. And it's basically like, you know, a short YouTube clip of, of these things playing over and over and over in my mind that I wasn't trying to think about, you know, driving to school or being in public places. I'd look around and be like, well, I'm safe. However, my body would give me signals that something very bad was about to happen. So I'd feel this intense dread. A lot of times I'd drive home from school and just smoke as much weed as possible, drink as much as possible until like I didn't have that feeling anymore. That's the only way I knew to get rid of it. There are a few bright spots along the way, like getting married to my wife, you know, getting into a four-year university. Other than that, uh, things just started getting worse and worse. And the more I tried to use alcohol and cannabis and cocaine and pills to cover it up, the less effect they had and more of the, the bad consequences. I, you know, broke the trust in my marriage not showing up for work. I started failing classes, just becoming a person that I despised. I was getting none of the benefits out of all these substances either. It was just basically, I'd grown such a tolerance for it that it was, I just needed them to, to feel regular now. And I remember this one time I was looking in the mirror and I have a tattoo that says Semper Fidelis, it's the Marine Corps motto, always faithful. And I was like, what a lie that is. Like I even have a lie tattooed on my body now. You know, I definitely dug myself into a pretty big hole there doing all I could not to feel the pain, not to feel the grief and, and not to deal with the symptoms of PTSD and get help. And from what I understand of addiction as well, is there's that element of self-loathing as well that kind of just yeah. perpetuates this cycle that you described, you know, you're mm -hmm. using and you're abusing these, these substances to make yourself feel better then you self-loathe and you feel like you need to just continue and over and over again. What was that kind of, what was your bottom? Like what was your rock bottom moment where you're like enough is enough? I, there were a couple of leading up to it. But I remember, you know, waking up after doing things I wasn't proud of the night before, just having this thought of, you know, usually it was, man, okay, I'm never drinking again, or I'm never going to do that again. But one day I woke up and said, I've said that so many times, it's just going to be a matter of time before I do something dumb, you know, drunk drive myself into a wall or do something really stupid. So I guess this is just my life now. That was a sad moment. The lowest I got and was actually my point of, of, of liberation from this is when I just sat down and talked to my wife. I don't know. I'm still not sure about the method I took to, to do it, but I basically just blurted out everything I'd done 
when she got home from work one day and said, yeah, I'm using a lot more and drugs and alcohol than you think. I've been unfaithful. I've, I'm just a person I despise. And so I just, I can't live this lie anymore. And then, oof, it was, it wasn't this big secret I had to keep up. From there, I was able to figure out what to do next to, to redeem myself and become the person that she knew I could be, that I knew I was deep down. You stumbled on Ironman. You were vacationing in Hawaii. Yeah. You see this crazy thing called Ironman happening around you and you're like, I, there's no way I could do that. These guys and girls are crazy. But then that, for the same as many of us, this the seed of, of doubt or the possibility starts to kind of gnaw away at your brain. Tell me about what that was like for you. You know, did you go home and research and think about what you could do? Oh, on the ground, like while I was there, I was looking it up on my phone. I was like, all right, what are these distances? You know, like I was like, what is this? And that, like, I remember it was this mixture of powerful feelings. Fear was one of them. Anger, because I was saying like, why would these people do this? What the hell is wrong with them? And then I could notice the excitement there. And that was that was the key to getting out of the control fear had over my life was noticing that a lot of times when I saw things that my heart desired, it was the excitement was there with the fear. And if I could notice that, I was like, well, there's something there. I don't know what it is cognitively, rationally, but I'm going to take the step towards it. There was something that drew me to it. It was just the buzz of the the village in Kona, you know, the Ironman village and the excitement I saw with all of the athletes. And it's like, man, they were really into this. Like they don't seem like I would feel in that moment. It was like this death sentence of this huge task I have to undertake, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was like, there must be something to this. And I got home and almost immediately, as soon as uh, a half Ironman in my, area, in my area opened up, I registered that morning for it. It was a powerful thing because here's the thing. I knew that physical fitness was the one of the keys to my salvation, really, because I had a friend who gave me a birthday present for my 30th birthday and I was just newly sober and he gave me a registration to a half marathon and I was pissed at him. I was like, I'm going to have to work <laughs> for this. the real gift? <laughs> who gives someone that? And yeah. it was a few weeks into training for this race. I just remember the corner I was in in this neighborhood. I just had this big epiphany. I was like, oh, I feel good. Like I feel safe in my body. Like I feel... Like it's okay to be here right now. And I had not had that in such a long time. And it was such a relief to feel that. And it was like, wow, I don't have to be completely loaded to feel like it's okay to be alive. And I said, there's something to this. I'm going to keep up with it. And so by the time the chance to, to do a triathlon came along, I'm all in. I just got to figure out, you know, like what this whole cycling thing is about. I knew how to, you know, ride a bike as a kid, but I was like, I imagine there might be some technique to the whole you know, turning the pedals. <laughs> now, I've, I've heard it described um, from a really good friend of mine, Charlie Engel, who's got a great story. Um, you know, he's 26 years sober. And he kind of transferred his addiction from, you know, drugs and alcohol to ultra running. The difference is when you're, when you're addicted to drugs and alcohol, you're doing that so you don't feel anything. And when you're addicted to moving and endurance sports, you're doing that so you do feel everything. So I'm guessing that's kind yeah. of that feeling you had when you're training and all of a sudden all of these sensations are coming back to you. And you're having this moment of like, oh, I feel again. I can feel what I'm supposed to be doing in this moment. I could feel in some sense the presence of my friends who were killed. And I could feel this, this act of forgiveness for myself happening. Like it's okay that I'm alive. It's okay to try to be happy. It's okay to continue my life. And so I was able to process these feelings I haven't had, uh, didn't allow myself to have uh, while I was running. 
or while I was swimming or cycling. Uh, most of them came on the run. And so I was able to laugh, shout, cry, all of these things while I was running. That process itself is like just as good as any therapy I could do. And I did some powerful therapy too. The, the fact of it was that, yeah, I did want to feel everything. And I finally was empowered and knew that I could, I had the strength to feel everything. I didn't have to avoid it. What was it like for you standing on the start line of your first 70.3, looking around, there's people in silly caps, there's colors everywhere, there's motion and excitement and noise. You know, I was there with my friend, Chris, who got me that registration for that first half marathon. Yeah. Talk about the best present he could have ever get, given me that launched me into this. I just made a short video because I was like, I want to put it out there while I'm doing this. I put all the names of my fallen on my jersey. And so I just want to dedicate you know, the race to them. I kept that in my mind and I was, I was scared. I was like, I'd never gone 70 miles before. I've never done really anything longer than a half marathon, you know, all at once. There was the jitters, but deep down below that was just the, the purpose. And that, that purpose of why I was doing it was like, give me all the strength I needed. And I knew, well, I'm not going to quit. I mean, worst case scenario, I just get more tired than I thought I was going to get. And yeah. so I, I just took that into it and, and off I went and God, it was so fun. It's so fun. Just the feeling of the water, uh, just the buzz of all the other athletes, just that race day feeling that we all know and love. It was mm -hmm. perfect. And I was like, yeah, uh, this is going to be part of my life for a long time. And then how quickly did you, did you take on Ironman after that? You know, 70.3, dip your toes in the water and then you, you move on to Ironman. How quickly did that happen for you? Two summers after I did my first full in, in Santa Rosa out here in Northern California. And man, nothing compares to that feeling, especially of, of coming across that finish line. The, the first one, that, that is a powerful feeling. Did you think back to that, your time in Hawaii? Like when you're going through that Ironman in Santa Rosa, did you think back to, you know, seeing yourself standing on the, on the sidelines, wondering yeah. what, what the hell these people are thinking about? I did. And I thought about, man, that was me. That was a version of me that did not see this as possible. I even have that feeling too during, during my first few 70.3s because I didn't think that was possible. If I didn't think that was possible and yet here I am doing it, what else can I do? And yeah. I mean, really, where are the limits? Are there limits? And so like my vision of what it meant to be alive and, and what I could accomplish and the limits I'd set for myself were just getting flipped over. At this point, you're still doing this for yourself. You're honoring the other people that um, you know, that you've lost and you're, and you're, you're really working on that side of it as well. But since then, and as a part of this process, you've really dug into what can you do as Mike Ergo to help and support other people who are going through the, the same and similar things that you were going through when you came back. Can you tell me about yeah. how transitions from war started, how the gold star initiative started? Well, I wanted to start writing about the the journey I was going through. And so I started transitions for more kind of a play on, you know, triathlon and, and my own journey back home just to, for myself to understand what was happening and put it out there. I, I didn't even think people would read it or listen to, you know, the podcast, but I said, you know what, maybe it'll help one person. Maybe it'll help a couple people I know. Eventually that got the attention of Ironman. You know, they invited me to Kona, phenomenal experience. And that came all came together the following year in Santa Rosa because they made me the ambassador for that race. And they asked me if I wanted to do something special. I don't know where it came from. It was just somewhere deep and it was terrifying. I said, I want to run the marathon of this race with an American flag in honor of someone who was killed in action here locally. And then there's just kind of a, a, a deadbeat, just a pause in the conversation. And they're like, are you sure you can do that? 
I was like, <laughs> yes, I'm hundred yeah. percent sure. I mean, like, cause I just tapped into the purpose. I mean, scared the hell out of me. And so that's where the gold star initiative started that year in Santa Rosa in, in 2018, we, we carried a flag in honor of a, you know, army corporal, Josh Kynock. The special thing was that I knew how alone I felt coming back and grieving. And I learned talking to Gold Star families, which are families that have lost someone serving in the military. I learned how alone they felt and how they wanted to connect with veterans and, and how the community back at home wanted to help both the Gold Star families and vets, but a lot of times wasn't sure how. I said, man, we have all these three people, like these three camps, like wanting to help each other, but we're all kind of suffering alone. So I said, what if we bring it together here in, in my favorite place in the world, race day and Ironman, and we honor, you know, those lost in, in combat, those lost in military service. And, you know, I knew the family would like it after talking to him. I had no idea how healing it would be for me, for other veterans who have been part of it since. And I had no idea how, how much the public would really like it. Response was overwhelmingly positive. So when I asked Iron Man if we could make this a national initiative, they said, yeah, of course. Now it's not just me carrying a flag. It's a lot of other veterans carrying flags and, you know, sharing and healing. Now, given that 2020, there's, you know, not, not a lot of races happening and potential that, you know, there's not going to be races this year at all. What are you guys working on to, to kind of continue that message? I'm sure you're getting more and more outreach. There's probably people who are really struggling through this time. Tell me about kind of how you're handling the current climate and the current circumstances we're all, we're all dealing with. I've stayed in contact with these families and I've been staying in contact with a lot of the vets I've, I've met out in the course who've been part of the Gold Star Initiative or who, who want to be. I know that in, in the same way, you know, when you're on the flight, they tell you, you know, with the oxygen mask drops down, you take care of yourself first so you can help someone else. And yeah. I've been doing that. I've been making sure that I get up and I work out, you know, because I'm feeling the anxiety. I'm feeling the fear here too. But I know that moving my body is the answer a lot of times or sitting in silence and breathing. I get up knowing that that is important to do. A couple of the races that were canceled, I just did them on my own. If they're not going to have the race, if they're not going to show up, I'll show up. And actually, uh, on my birthday, I was supposed to do the San Francisco Rock and Roll Half Marathon. Obviously, it was canceled. And so I ran it myself. And my daughter made this medal, which is now my, my favorite medal. So we did that. And the last weekend, it was supposed to be the Ironman 70.3 santa rosa socially distanced with a few other friends you know we did that ourselves you know we did a 1.2 mile run and then the bike and the, the standard run being able to move my body and just adapt like i think being a marine uh, is an advantage now because one of the things they always say about marines is they improvise adapt and overcome and just kind of figure out how to put uh, ingenuity and duct tape together and, and figure something out and so that's that's what i've been doing well, I, I applaud your your positivity. I I applaud your approach. I applaud the way that you're you're living your life and you're giving back and you're serving and you're helping other people. You know, hats off and kudos to you for for living this full life and and taking on your own journey and facing your demons and and doing it in a way that's that's supportive and helpful to to other people who are going through the things that you've been through. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to if it's not 2020, it's going to be 2021. But I will be carrying the flag at Kona. I get to go back there and carrying the flag for a fallen Marine Lance Corporal Nick Anderson and his his mother is, is a very dear friend to me. So we're going to get to honor her son and she'll be there at the race at the biggest stage in triathlon, going to honor someone really special. So 
whenever that happens this year, next year, I'm looking forward to it. This has been the fastest 45 minutes I think of my whole entire life. <laughs> I do have three questions I want to ask you. I'm, I'm very sure that we will continue to have conversations like this. I want to hear more of that journey. I want to tell more of your stories. We're going to do this over and over again. I, I, I've enjoyed our, our chat today. These are the same questions I ask every day. First one being, What's one thing that's changed for you during this isolation period that you want to keep, you want to make a part of your life once we go back to whatever our new normal is? Hugging my family because, not that I never do that, but I, I'm a big physical contact person. I love to high five. I like to hug. Not being able to do that with friends and people I care about outside of my family, I've really taken the time to be affectionate with my kids and with my wife and I want to keep that. Yeah, so I, you know, I watch you watch TV or you watch movies and you see people hugging and high fiving, and I'm like, yeah, I wish I could just, give, <laughs> you know, a wife and kids, but like other people, just like give them a high five and give them a hug when you greet them. It's yeah, I'm looking forward I to know. that too. Second question: What's one thing that you thought was important before isolation um, that you're happy to leave in the past? God, I'm blanking out on that one. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you with that. We'll come. We'll come back to that one. Um, <laughs> last. Well, I'll give you some answers that people uh, people have given that might might help jog your memory or, or give you some thoughts. So a lot of people have talked about spending money, spending stuff, money on stuff that they don't need. Yeah. Uh, other people have talked about having to feel like they need to show up for social media and, and you know, creating content that, you know, may not serve them, but they want to feel relevant. The other one that's been really interesting is, you know, driving and traveling and feeling like you have to be on the road and, and constantly in motion and moving. So, yeah, I think one of them is the the having to spend a lot of money and go somewhere far to have quality family time because i mean we I went camping in the backyard with my with my kids you know a few weeks ago and that was that was pretty fun what's uh, third question final question what's been the most memorable moment of joy you've had during this isolation period when my daughter came up to me on my birthday and she gave me this medal that she handmade and she said dad i made you this medal because i know your race got canceled and you really like to do races and I want you to be happy. And my heart just melted, felt the tears welling. I was like, wow, this little kid is special. She's six, six years old. Yeah. Mike, this has been amazing. I, I really appreciate your time. It's been an honor connecting and having this conversation. Um, as I said earlier, I would, uh, I would long to have more of these because I think your, your story and your journey is, is so impressive and I want to make sure lots of people hear about it. So it's been yeah. fun talking with you, Travis. Thank you. Thanks to Mike for joining me. It was kind of him to indulge my questions and to see the vulnerability and openness shine through was memorable. It's impossible for me to imagine what Mike experienced in his time as a Marine, but I can acknowledge and understand the joy he experiences as an Ironman finisher. I appreciate Mike for showing up and I appreciate you all for being here. Stay tuned for more of the I'm Curious to Know project throughout May.